0: Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I ask you now that at the end of this conference and as we move forward, over a million people would be mightily and boldly unashamed of the gospel. I pray first that it would be true of us, these 7,000 or so folks, In this room, and then I pray for the 700,000 folks who are in our churches that we might rub off on, and then I pray for another 300,000 or so through their influence. Lord, we don't want to stamp our arrows on the ground too few times with low expectations for what you might be pleased to do when these brothers and sisters are unleashed on the world unashamed of the words of the gospel. So come and do that, I pray. And I ask that we would be granted by the power of the Holy Spirit to sorrow over the lost, to plead with the lost, and to pray for the lost. And I pray for myself now that I would be faithful to your word and that it would be added to the other magnificent heralding that we have heard from your holy, inerrant, powerful, life-changing word. Come and grant that help for all of us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. My title is Persuading, Pleading, and predestination, human means in the miracle of conversion. And I invite you to open your Bible, if you have one, to Romans chapter 9. The ninth chapter of Romans is the fullest, most forthright, blunt chapter. On the freedom and the sovereignty of God's saving grace in all the Bible. It contains statements like this. Verse 3, my kinsmen are accursed and cut off from Christ. Verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Verse 10, before Jacob and Esau were born or had done anything good or bad, Jacob was chosen to inherit the covenant promise, not Esau. Verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. It depends not on him who wills or him who runs, but on God, who has mercy. Verse 17, I've raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and my name be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, God has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. Verse 19. Why does he still find fault? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Statements like that. Most people are shocked when they read Romans 9. Very few people are so steeped in the biblical spirit of the majesty and the freedom of God that these things make sense. Here's my main question. Why is this here? I mean generally why it's here, but specifically at this point in Romans, why is it here? Why just here? Now. I'm assuming that this is Scripture, and therefore is inspired and infallible, or as Paul says, profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work, including the work of evangelism and the work of world missions. I'm assuming these words are not here to undermine personal evangelism. These words are not here to undermine global missions. They are here to strengthen and empower and stabilize and deepen and advance and make more fruitful your personal witnessing efforts and your corporate evangelism and your global efforts to reach the unreached peoples of the world. That's why these verses are here. I'm just assuming that in the big picture because they are Scripture and all Scripture is that. It's profitable. None of it's there by accident or to undermine any other part of it or any duty in the Christian life. I'm assuming that if Romans 9 were rightly understood and rightly felt, more people would enter the Kingdom of God with white-hot affection for God than if this chapter were not in the Bible. Those are just big assumptions that I have about the nature of Scripture and Romans 9 being part of it about Romans 9. So my, ba- my main question, here it is again, why is it here, here, right here in Romans? Why does Paul take us there into these weighty matters of election and predestination, the absolute sovereignty and freedom of God? Why does he go there, here? That's my main question. So let's turn there. I'll tell you where I'm going after that. I have one main question, and then I'm going to ask three short questions at the end. Okay, in view of that, what effect does Romans 9 and its truth and reality have on Paul's relationship to lost people? That's where we're going. Paul has just finished writing Romans 1 to 8. These are the greatest eight chapters in the Bible, and they reach a crescendo in Romans 8 with promises that are spectacular, off the charts precious to us. Let's just walk through it and bullet these unspeakably precious promises. Verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. Verse 16, we are the children of God and if children then heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified with the very Son of God, Heir of all things. Verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Verse 21, the creation, the whole thing, all the cosmos, all that the Hubble telescope is seeing will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children so that they have a playground suitable for their resurrection bodies. Verse 28. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose, everything works for our good. Verse 30, those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He infallibly glorified as good is done. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not with him freely give us all things? All things are yours. Paul or Apollos or Cephas or things present or things to come or life or death, all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. That's 1 Corinthians. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 35, who will separate you from the love of Christ? Verse 37, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And right here, right here, Paul pours out Romans 9, concerning the freedom of God and the sovereignty of God in election, why? The God of Israel has just embraced the world. He said His Son, He inaugurated a new covenant. He set in motion a global mission to rescue sinners. He promised a glorious consummation for the entire universe. And all of it, all of it is totally dependent on the faithfulness of God, totally dependent on the integrity of God, totally dependent on the righteous, promise-keeping God. If God is not faithful, Romans 8 means nothing. And as Paul takes up Romans 9 now, that horrible possibility is precisely the issue. Israel, God's chosen covenant people with untold privileges, have rejected her Messiah and en masse are accursed and cut off from Messiah Jesus. Gentiles are streaming into the kingdom from east and west and north and south, and the sons of the kingdom are being thrown into outer darkness. Matthew chapter 21 verse 43. No, that's 8 11, Matthew 8.11. So people look and they say, So, God's covenant people are lost. What good is a covenant? What good are such promises? What good is a history of Israel? His word has fallen. He's not faithful to his covenant. That's what Paul is dealing with now. Why? Because if he's not faithful to his covenant to Israel, you Christians have no warrant to think he'll be faithful to you, and Romans Romans 8 falls to the ground along with Israel. That's the issue. Let's read verses 1 to 3. Romans 9, 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh." Paul lives with sorrow and anguish that he says is unceasing because his Jewish kinsmen, for the most part, have rejected the Messiah and are therefore anathema. He uses that word elsewhere cursed and cut off from the Redeemer." Verse 3, "'I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers the kinsmen according to the flesh.'" Paul stands ready to be damned for his kinsmen. If it were possible, if God were the kind of God that would damn a person who loved someone so much they're willing to be damned. He's not that kind of God, therefore Paul says this provisionally. It can't happen, but he's willing. In that world, which doesn't exist, he would be willing. Of course, not all of them are lost. Paul is an Israelite, and he makes much of that in chapter 11, and I wish we could talk about that too. As a whole though, the Jewish people have turned away from Messiah. Kingdom has been taken away from them, given to a people bearing the fruits, Matthew 21. This in spite of spectacular benefits. Let's read verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, I'm sorry, to them belong. I skipped a line. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In spite of all that, they're lost. Many, many, many individual Jews are lost, accursed, cut off from Christ. What can this mean? Messiah arrives, and mass rejected, and mass they go to hell, cursed, cut off from Redeemer. What can that mean? The Word of God is fallen. To show that that's what Paul is responding to, now we read verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed or fallen. He preempts the objection, which shows how real the objection is. No, that is not what you should infer from the lostness of so many thousands of Jewish people. That's not what has happened. God's covenant people are perishing as a whole. What good is a covenant? And Paul responds, it's not that the Word of God has fallen, and the rest of Romans 9 to 11 supports that. So the issue is, is God faithful to His covenant? Is God faithful to the promises? Is God, is the God of Romans 8 reliable? Oh, how we love Romans 8 can live all our lives in Romans 8. We will live all our eternity in Romans 8. And if Romans 8 falls to the ground because God can't keep His covenant even with Israel, what good is it? That's why these next three chapters are in the Bible, and that's why the verses we're going to look at are here. That's the issue. Has God's Word failed? Has Romans 8 lost its foundation in the faithfulness of a promise-keeping God? Now to answer the question, to support the answer to the question, no, that is not what has happened. The Word of God has not fallen, that's the thesis in verse 6, the Word of God in spite of all these tens of thousands of Jewish people being cursed and cut off from Christ. The Word of God has not fallen. That's the thesis. That's got to be defended. And that's what He does in order that we might enjoy Romans 8. How does He do it? He does it in the first 13 verses by giving three levels of argument, and I want to kick you through these one at a time, because they are Paul's way of moving toward the doctrine of unconditional election, enabling us then in this context to see how that doctrine helps Paul relate to lost people. Three levels. Number one, I'll tell you what they are, then we're going to see them in the text. Number one, the Word of God has not fallen, one, because the covenant promises were never intended to be valid for every ethnic Jew. That's level one in the argument. Level two in the argument. The true Israel within Israel, for whom they were intended, were brought into being. The true Israel was brought into being, not by any human means whatsoever, but by the God of promise, or by the word of promise. The sovereign word of promise brought into being the true Israel within Israel that's level two in the argument. Level three in the argument is before they were brought into being by the word of promise, they were unconditionally chosen. Those are the three levels of the argument. So evidently, this is where we're going, evidently Paul believes That for you to enjoy the kind of assurance and solid, unshakable confidence in the promises of Romans 8, you need to understand and believe and enjoy and celebrate the truth of unconditional election. That's what gripped me 40 years ago. It's the argument for my life. Romans 8 is my life, and I'm not making up how I should stand on it. I'm watching Paul help me believe it, help me have confidence. These precious words in Romans 8 stand on something, that the depths of Romans 9, support the heights of Romans 8. If you're going to build a skyscraper that reaches to eternity, you got to dig some pretty good footings. Like forever. (laughs) All the way down. Forever. To support the forever of Romans 8. So that's where we're going. Let's consider the levels, number one. Let's read, let me just, in verses six, seven, and eight, Paul states level one of his argument three times in different words, the Word of God has not fallen because The word of promise, the word of covenant, never was intended by God to apply to every ethnic Israelite. That's argument number one. Verse 6b, it's not as though the word of God has fallen for, because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's an argument. Why the word hasn't fallen? Because not all Israel is Israel. It didn't apply to all Israel. It applied to, what should we call it? Let's call it true Israel. If you don't like that phrase, come up with a better one for this narrower group, it's not Israel, but is Israel. I'm going to use the term true Israel. Verse seven, again, the same point of the argument repeated, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. There are physical offspring, and there are children. There are children of the flesh, and there are children of, let's go ahead to verse 8. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring." So they're children of the flesh and they're children of God, or children of promise. So the first level of the argument stated three times, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, is that the reason the word of God to Israel has not fallen, even though tens of thousands of them are unbelieving is that the promise was valid for, rock solid, absolutely sure for the true Israel, the children of Abraham, the children of promise, the children of God, not other Jews. That's argument number one, here's number two, level number two. That true Israel, those children of God, those children of promise within corporate ethnic Israel did not come into being by their own doing, but by the sovereign, effective word of promise. Let's look at that. At the end of verse 7. Paul cites Genesis 21, 12, where God says to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, you remember the context. Abraham wanted desperately for Ishmael to be counted as the seed. He had made, it, he had made Ishmael happen he figured that out. I don't have an heir, I'll get an heir. And he got an heir. And God looks at that process of human production and he says, no, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I don't build my people through that kind of human effort. I do it with miracle children. And that was not Ishmael. That's Isaac. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now verse 9. Finish the, the argument, the second level of the argument. He's quoting Genesis 18.10. is earlier now as to how the promise works to make true Israel. I've said true Israel doesn't create itself. True Israel, children of God, children of promise are created by God's effective, infallible, omnipotent word of promise. Now, how does he make that point? Verse verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. She's barren. She's 90 years old. She cannot have an heir. Camels don't do the, through the eyes of needles. With man, it is impossible. That's where I'm going to get my heir. Right there. You try whatever you want to make this happen. I don't do it that way. I produce a true Israel through my word of promise. Next year, I'm showing up. She's going to have a baby. I said so. That's what creates the children of God. That's level two. It stands, this word, this promise stands as absolutely sure because it creates what it promises. Ishmael illustrates what can be brought into being by human ability, and Isaac represents what? is brought into being by divine sovereignty. Level three, the true Israel that is brought into being by the sovereign, effective word of promise, not by human agency, was chosen unconditionally before that happened. So how does he show that? He moves from the illustration of Isaac and Ishmael to the illustration of Jacob and Esau. And there are four things about the illustration of Jacob and Esau that make it an absolutely stunning and striking illustration of the point he's trying to make. His point here is not any longer the children of promise are of supernatural origin. That's not his point. That was point two, level two. The new point is those those people that I have now brought into being by my omnipotent word of promise were, were chosen before that happened, and they were chosen totally unconditionally. That's his new point. So how does he make, make that point? Here's what makes this illustration of Jacob and Esau, four things that make it so amazingly suited to his point. Number one, they were twins in the same womb, so he's trying to prove sameness. Nobody's better qualified because Ishmael was 13 years older than Isaac. Maybe he messed up. We need need a new one. That'd be nice and conditional. Number two, they had the same parents. While Ishmael had a Gentile mother, maybe that's why he wasn't chosen. So Ishmael and Isaac wouldn't work as an effective proof of Paul's point here. Too many differences between Isaac and Ishmael and their origin. Here you got the same parents, not a Gentile mother. Third, God chose the heir before they were born, or had done anything good or bad. And no doubt, Ishmael, being 13 years old when Isaac was born, had done plenty of bad things to disqualify him, so that God then conditionally uh, chose Isaac. No. No, they hadn't done anything. They hadn't done anything good, or bad to qualify as the heir. And Number four, against all convention and precedent, God chooses the younger to be the heir, not the older. Now here's the question, why did God do it this way? That's Paul's asking. Paul is reading his Old Testament and asking, what does all this mean? And Paul gives a very vivid statement of the answer why God did it this way in the middle of verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, now pause, I went too fast, in order that this is why don't you love those words in order that? My favorite conjunction in the Bible is henna. I want to know why things are done. I want to know what God's up to. Why do you do things? And He helps me hundreds and hundreds of times. Like right here. Why are you doing this? I'm doing it in Order that God's purpose of election, first time he's used the word in this chapter. My purpose of election might continue, stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's why I chose. Jacob and not Esau. Election has been lying just beneath the surface, right? Just beneath the surface, unnamed since verse 6. God chose true Israel in verse 6. God chose the true children of Abraham in verse 7. God chose the children of promise in verse 8. And now it's explicit. Why are you doing it this way? in order that my purpose of election might continue in a certain way, what way? Not on the basis of anyone's good or bad deeds since I chose them before they were born and had done nothing good or evil, but on the basis of, interesting right here, most of the places in, in Paul, where not from works, but from, yeah, you expect to hear not from works, but from faith. And that is manifestly contrary to what he wants to say, and so he doesn't say it. One of them had not become a believer in the womb. Oh, I see some faith. I choose on the basis of the faith that I see in the womb. No does not say that, he says, I am doing what I'm doing so that my purpose of election will stand, not be fallen, like people say my purposes have fallen, it will not be fallen, but will stand not on the basis of anybody's performance of anything, but on the basis of God Almighty who calls? So God is put in the place of faith here, not faith. So, unconditional election is a phrase that is not a stretch at all for these verses which is why he goes on to underscore that truth at least three more times. Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Verse 16, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So back to my main question. Why is this here? So Paul leads us into the doctrine of unconditional election. At this point, he says to show that the word of God has not fallen. God's word of Promise has infallibly created a people for himself, a true Israel, the children of promise, the children of God, and they are chosen unconditionally, and therefore, the saving promise of God for them cannot fail, because ultimately and decisively, two of my favorite words in this regard, essential words, I don't know how to say it to avoid contradiction any better because ultimately and decisively, it does not depend on them at all. Therefore fear not you Christians, Romans 8 stands, that's the argument. Which means that the doctrine of unconditional election, Paul regards as, not to overstate it, very important for your surety as you stand. We are being handed over to death every day. We are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered, Romans 8, 35 and 36. At that point, Paul believes you need a place to stand. And he believes unconditional election is the bottom of the standing. Our security, our assurance, our confidence is what the doctrine of unconditional election is for, and therefore it is precious beyond words. Now that's the answer to my main question, and here are my three answers to the question What effect does that truth have on Paul's relationship to lost people? I have three answers that I see in three chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'll take them one at a time. The doctrine of unconditional election evidently sustains Paul in the great sorrow and unceasing anguish of his heart for his lost kinsman, John MacArthur had to leave. If he were here, I would look down at him at this point and say, did you ever set the ball up for me on your last two minutes? Weeping, he had Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Paul is weeping over Jerusalem. How can Jesus stand it? And he went to verse 65 of John 6. This is why I told you, nobody can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. That is my resting place, John MacArthur said, Jesus said. And that's right. It's Paul's resting place. You got people you love. How can you stand it? How can you stand the prospect? They might not come. Paul looked on a sea of Jewish faces, that's my picture now, he looked on a sea of Jewish faces, drowning in an ocean of unbelief, and he remembers that he was snatched by an invisible hand out of that sea, and he's gasping for breath in the house of Judas of Damascus. And a man named Ananias prays for him. And God takes the scales from his eyes, and he's saved. He remembers this. He remembers this. And when he asks, which he does, you can read the answers, why? I was not a candidate, why me? There are two answers. Number one, Ephesians 3, 7, it is a gift of God's grace. Number two, you are my chosen instrument. My elect instrument to carry my name before Gentiles. I am gracious, you are chosen. That's your answer. Don't look any further. It will go bad for your heart if you look further. So, the doctrine of unconditional election destroys every sense of superiority. It leaves us weeping with the sheer wonder of thankfulness. And this weeping overflows into great sorrow for the lost. If we don't feel this, and we often don't, if we don't feel the weeping wonder that I was chosen owing to nothing in me, and therefore my heart is aching for the sea of people who are just as worthy and unworthy of this as I am, if if that doesn't cause us to feel the weeping of wonder and the weeping of compassion, it is not because we believe the doctrine of unconditional election. It's because we don't believe it in such a way that we've been broken by it. That's why. You got work to do, brothers. I got work to do on my face before God in the verses of the Bible that tell me the effect that unconditional election is supposed to have on me. This is not about winning arguments. This is about weeping. I didn't even read the text. Verses 1 and 2. I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart." I I have read those verses countless times with absolute dismay as to how he survived. The word is unceasing. You have anguish. Every now and then, Paul says, mine's unceasing. My sorrow is great and unceasing. MacArthur's effort at the end of his sermon was so right and so needed. How do you stand it? And that's where he goes. I stand it not by minimizing lostness, not by losing compassion, not by ceasing tears. I stand it because when I'm wobbling all over the place emotionally, my feet find a resting place. My God is powerful. My God is sovereign. My God is wise. My God chooses whom he wills. I have zero explanation for my election. I just want to pour myself out to rescue as many as I can the way I was rescued. Observation number two, implication number two. First one was weeping, and and the next one, there are three, the next one is the doctrine of unconditional election empowers Paul's labors to persuade the lost to believe and be saved. The doctrine of unconditional election empowers Paul's effort, labor, to persuade and plead with lost people to be saved. Let's go to chapter 11. Verses thirteen and fourteen. Very strange evangelistic strategy here. Inasmuch, eleven thirteen. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, my ministry to the Gentiles, in order is my favorite word again, in order, somehow, to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus, save some. You see that little word, somehow? You feel that word? Paul's got a pragmatic strain to him. We hate pragmatism, right? We reformed Bible-saturated people hate pragmatism. But I just want to end this conference on a note that you better be a dreamer. You better think programs and strategies and i have got to somehow, 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 somehow get through. It's there. Maybe if I walk into a synagogue. And tell them how many unclean Gentiles are enjoying their inheritance. <laughs> Maybe. That would work. Work, 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 work. It work. Pragmatism. Yes. I mean, if you don't do any of that, you don't love people. You don't get theology. You don't love people. If you don't have some sense, I've got to find a way to get through to them. I've got to find a way. Now read it again, inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow, you feel that? Like I became a Jew to the Jews, and I became lawless to the lawless, if by any means, any means, I might save some. He's not afraid of that language, he knows good and well who saves sinners, but he knows human agency. The doctrine of unconditional election as it played itself out in the world in the apostolic authority in no way hinders your human strategizing to reach your city, your kids, the carnal church members, think and dream and plan and come up with evangelism explosion 2.0. Or whatever. So the second thing I see is there's planning, there's preaching, there's writing, there's loving, there's caring, there's pursuing, there's pleading. If by any means I might save some. Oh God, grant me a way to break through. Next time you're sitting across the table from an unbeliever and they're willing to listen, use words and tell them the best news in all the world. I'm going to press you on this. You're done with the objective narration of the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. And they've heard the facts. You might have drawn it on a napkin. People have been saved. Yeah. And you're thinking, God making His appeal through me, I plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So I want I to commend this to you. You have been chosen unconditionally for everlasting joy. You're sitting across the table from a lost person who, if he does not believe, will perish if he does believe he joins you forever. I want to encourage you the next time that happens to look him right in the eye and say, I want you. I want you is what I mean by plead. I want you to go with me. I want you for a sister. I want you for a brother. I want you. You know what? That person may never have heard anybody in all their life say, I want you. And you're talking on behalf of God. You're standing in the place of God because you heard. You discovered by reading your Bible, God said that to you before you were born or had done anything good or evil. I want you. You said, why? That's none of your business. I will never tell you that. I'm God. I want you. This should make us cry. This should make us stand in awe. I want you. So say that to somebody. I mean, you do, you do want them. You wouldn't be sitting there, but they need to hear you say it. I think sometimes we, we, we do objective evangelism, we never get to the point of, I want you. Lastly, the doctrine of unconditional election impels the earnestness of Paul's prayer for the salvation of his kinsmen. So first is weeping, second is pleading, or human strategies of every kind imaginable, and third is praying, and you know where I am, chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So notice those two things, my heart is aching and my prayers are rising. My heart's desire, that's one level, and my prayer to God, that's the verbal level, is that they may be saved. Now, I'm going to close with an illustration of the weaving together of these things that has helped me enormously not make stupid mistakes about the false implications of the doctrine of unconditional election. My father was an evangelist. Sixty years, he heralded a beautiful gospel. I heard him preach dozens of times. He was not a pastor. He was a traveling mini Billy Graham, and he had crusades and tent meetings in the early days, and he had his 500 where Billy Graham had his 50,000, and I would go with my dad and listen to him plead for sinners. He had a spectacular gift of evangelism, and he was faithful to it to the very end. What an amazing life he led. He was very traditional. He gave invitations at the end, and they sang songs. They sang as often as any, softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See at the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O oh, sinner. Come home. Can a Calvinist sing that? Calling, watching, waiting. I have heard young people mock that song. Not too many recently. We got a little more nuance today. But I've heard heard people mock that song. Old people. The sovereign Christ, risen from the dead, omnipotent over the human heart, never merely calls and waits and watches, for goodness sakes. To which I respond, where did you hear the word merely? Where, where, did, did I say merely? Did, did we sing? Merely, I love precision. <laughs> now let's, let's finish the picture. The song has begun, there's 300 people in the room. My dad has walked down out of the pulpit where he's delivered a beautiful, glorious gospel message, and he's standing at the front, as close as I am now to you, to these 300 people, and he's got his arms out, and regularly, no show, there were tears in his eyes. And he looked right at people, would you come, would you step out, would you come? He will have you. And you felt every, everything in your body, said, he's standing in the place of Jesus. Inviting people to come. About ten rows back, there's a a mom with her college-age son. He's an out and out unbeliever and hates being here, but mom asked him and to make her happy, he came along and my dad says. Every eye closed, every head bowed. We mock this, right? Every saint praying. All right. Jesus is standing at the front, at the portal, calling, waiting, watching, having been lifted up as the triumphant. Christ of the gospel. Here's a mom and she's praying. What does she pray? He's standing right here, eager to be home and out of this place. And she's praying, Oh God, please pour out your Holy Spirit on my son. I beg of you, take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, open his eyes. Break him. Destroy him. Have him. Take him. Come. Come, sovereign God. Come. And God, the Holy Spirit, opens his eyes and he sees the risen waiting calling Christ as irresistibly beautiful. And he says, excuse me, Mom. And he falls into the arms of my Father as if in the arms of Jesus. Will you be those arms? I beseech you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God. I I want you. Yes. God is sovereign. God Almighty, through his own unconditional election, through the crucified, risen, waiting, watching Christ, through the tears, the pleading, the praying, the preaching, and through the all-conquering Holy Spirit, God saves sinners. Let's pray. God, you chose us owing to nothing in ourselves, and your promises are sure. And in this utterly undeserved surety, I pray that you would grant us to weep for those who are cursed and cut off from Christ. I pray that you would grant us to plead. I pray that you would grant us to pray for the lost, for you are God.